How would you run a business if you were not allowed to refuse customers, no matter what they wanted from you? This is the Lovers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Steve Klein. Steve was the former CEO and general manager of Snohomish PUD, the 12th largest public utility district in the United States. We talked about the utility's obligation to serve. It's the notion that, in return for a local monopoly, a utility is not permitted to turn customers away. This constrains how they set their rates, how they pursue innovations, and how they interact with their regulators and the general public. And now, let's look at what it takes to instill a culture of innovation into a utility. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And you spent nine years at Snohomish as the general manager, right? That's correct. So starting off in engineering, physics, and math back yeah. in uh, Western Washington, yeah. what did you think you were going to be doing? Well, I was uh, interested in helping people. And so my first thought was medical school. And that's what initially got me into kind of the pre-med background where I started taking all the chemistry and the biology and the physics. And I found that I enjoyed physics the most. It just You could put real-world activities, playing a guitar and harmonics and all these different things. I just thought that was fantastic. And then I volunteered at a hospital in Puyallup and got involved in a case because I was a young college student at that time. And a young girl had fallen off the back of her boyfriend's motorcycle and ground her face into the asphalt. And I got involved in kind of her rehabilitation and that sort of thing, because it was somebody her age that she could talk to and all that stuff. And it just tore my gut up. I couldn't sleep. And I felt so, and I thought, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Now, in reality, I like most physicians who do care, you eventually I wouldn't say you get used to it, be able to do it. I decided, hey, physics seems a lot less stressful in the evening. A and lot so, less dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So I, I transferred to the University of Washington and got into electrical engineering. And from there, you went straight to Tacoma Power, was that? Or was uh, no, I, I actually worked at uh, Boeing Computer Services, which was the wild and woolly days when uh, Boeing had tremendous capability internal in terms of uh, IT. And they decided, well, why don't we offer that up as a service to the broader business community? Because a lot of people say, oh, you work for Boeing. It must have been pretty slow and you were stuck in a back corner. No, this was actually an entrepreneurial effort by Boeing that it was either make it or break it. Mm -hmm. And so I got the advantage of working for a big company that was well-financed, a lot extremely bright people to learn from. But it was also get by by the seat of your pants, entrepreneurial, you got to make a, a product, put it together, and you got to have it have it sell. So uh, I just got a lot of good experience at that point in the computer field, doing everything, everything from coding to implementing project managing computer systems in the wind tunnel at Boeing Field, which then led me after that, I said, well, I better actually do something in the power field because I spe specifically 
majored in power engineering. So I, like I said, I did a brief stint, but it, it never hurt me. And even more so today, I think a leader in the utility industry, more than almost any other field today, really has to understand computer technologies. I mean, it's getting into cyber issues and like we talked the other day about blockchain transactions and dealing with solar inputs on distribution systems and how utilities and customers and suppliers are going to track and account for all of this. If you're a utility leader and you come from just purely a legal background or I put transformers and wire in and you really haven't thought broader than that, you're going to be past your due date pretty doggone soon. You got to be thinking about those bigger issues around technology and innovation. And it all involves, you know, software and computer system. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, you've been out of the utility sector formally for just three years. Yeah. Have you seen the scope of responsibility that the current utility CEOs have to deal with much broader now than what you even had to deal with back then? Well, I would say it, it's been there for quite some time. It's just the clock is ticking. So I, I wouldn't say that there's been that significant a change in the last three years as much as maybe the change is more expectation by the consumers. Because unfortunately, the technology to get where we might talk on this podcast about for the future, we're nowhere near close to having the technology to do it. Mm. We're still in the early stage of the, of the transition. And that's why I kind of say the leader of a utility today needs to beginning to understand an innovation strategy and what that means for the utility. But if they figure that out in the next six months or the next year, they still got enough time. Right. Yeah, it'll still be many years yes. before those implementation That's cycles right. happen. Let's set the context a little bit of what is a utility. Okay. So uh, Snohomish, it is about 300,000 clients or so. Getting closer uh, to 400. Getting closer to 400 now. Uh, 12th largest public utility in the nation. Yes. Yeah, uh, right in there with Seattle and Austin uh, in the 400 plus or minus size customer base. Okay. But interestingly, uh, Snohomish is almost 2,300 square mile service territory. Seattle and Austin are a smaller footprint because they basically represent the city. So Seattle's 100 square miles. So you get some real differences between a utility that's all urbanized versus one that has urban area, but also rural and less dense kind of systems. So, so to the general public, a utility is a utility, a utility yeah, that's clearly, right. right? But what is a public utility and how is that different from the Puget Sound Energy, PG&E, what's formerly called yeah. investor-owned utilities? Yeah. Well, and even some people consider public utility a publicly traded utility. So sometimes, to be, which I agree because we do call ourselves a public utility, probably a more exacting term would be consumer-owned utility or a locally owned utility. So it's a public utility district in the case of Snohomish. It's the city of Seattle in the case of Seattle City Light. So in those cases, the actual community owns the, the utility and they regulate the utility on the basis. And there's different models in the case of Seattle. It's the city council of Seattle. In the case of Snohomish PUD, it's a public utility district. There's an elected board. Um, that's elected across the county. 
that then acts as the regulator. Now, in the case of Puget Sound Energy or Avista, they are investor-owned. In this case, the owners could all be living in New York, but the, they own the stock, but the, all the customers are in, in Washington State. And in, their, in that case, they're regulated by a state utilities commission that in our, in our particular state, uh, they're appointed by the governor, some states, and even today there's debate about whether those individuals should be elected or appointed because some people feel people have more of a voice when they elect them directly. But, you know, we do elect the governor, and so, you know, you do have a say indirectly in, in who the utilities and transportation Yeah, are. so it sounds like the different utility models define the governance structure of who's in charge yes. of watching over that as well as where the money comes from in terms of investing in the infrastructure, the wires, the lines, the generators, and, and then who they serve. Well, the only thing Those I would correct there, I would say you're correct, is the money still always comes from the rate payers to build the system. And then in the case of investor-owned utilities, they get a rate of return on that investment that then goes to the stock so typically the stockholders don't themselves directly fund anything, any activity within the, they take the risk in purchasing their, their equity share of the, of the company. Yeah. So it, it also sounds like then uh, each individual, at least to the discussion so far yeah. right now, actually wears two different hats. They are a voter in yeah. the sense of they vote for the regulatory, the commission, the council. Right. But then they're also the rate payer uh, because we assume utilities are covering the 100% of the population in a particular right. area. So they are both voting for the commissioners, but then they're also paying the rates That's right. that is affording the, the infrastructure, the, the, uh, the wires, the capital, the substations and whatnot. That's correct. And that's a real basic and simple way to look at it. As soon as you peel back the onion, it gets very, it's very complicated. Yeah. Do you ever find conflict between what the ratepayers want and what the voters want, even though they're the same person? All the time. All the time. Are yeah. there examples of that? Well, I, I ran into it all of the time. So, for example, uh, when I was at Snohomish, we were having a modest rate increase one year, since utilities, in the case of Snohomish and Seattle City Light, that are consumer-owned, they're not-for-profits. So basically, what they do, they have to collect, but they're not collecting a, a profit. And so if you actually plan to spend more than you would typically take in, you have to raise rates in order to generate more revenue. So in this case, I had sold in, in, in discussion with the commissioners the idea of launching one of the most generous and aggressive local solar programs in the country. And I specifically wanted to call it a million-dollar solar program so I could get the community thinking this was not just you know one solar on the roof of the local library that actually what meant to penetrate you know deeply into the community and to get local purveyors trained and interested in getting into the installation business. So it was kind of a big deal. So the idea of all that, we had to have a modest adjustment in order to fund a million-dollar launch of a million-dollar solar program. So we're having a public hearing. The public shows up. 
people are coming up to the podium to give their name and address and state, we don't like the idea of a rate increase. If only you utilize solar, you wouldn't have to have a rate increase, which immediately showed we didn't really do a good job of advertising what the purpose of the rate increase was. So that was a case where people thought, well, solar is free. It's cheap. If only you were investing in solar, because here in the Northwest, we're mainly hydro, but people get hit by the media, you know, expensive coal, expensive, all these sort of things. So they're thinking if you would stop with the coal and build up more solar, you, you wouldn't have to have a rate increase. So there's there's an example of right. where the the public wanted the same thing that myself and the board wanted. We were responding to the public. The public just didn't understand that in order to initiate a solar program, you needed to make an investment. You know, when you say that these utilities have these rate structures and these regulators, how did those uh, constructs get formed? Why were they set up in that sort of a way? In, in the beginning, utilities were unregulated. It was do what you choose. And so if you happen to live near a utilities line, they'd hook you up. If you live a long ways away and they didn't think there were enough people along the way to generate enough income, they wouldn't go there. Or like what went on, some of the investors in the early utilities were also related to manufacturing companies. So they would serve the manufacturing company that they own stock in, but then would refuse to serve another company that wanted to automate and begin to use energy to produce a more efficient product, and they refused to serve them. So the compact that came out of all of this battle 150 some years ago was utilities would get monopoly service territories, but they would it would come with an obligation that they would have to serve everybody in that service territory. And then they would create customer classes to spread the cost across everybody evenly. So it didn't matter where you lived in the system, if you're a residential customer, your volumetric charge for a kilowatt hour would, would be the same. And so they had to create customer classes create a volumetric charge, and we're basically a commodity-focused company. We are going to deliver one way to you this commodity for you to use. And what happened as a result of that is the, is the good news story for the United States is those systems got built up and were very reliable and for the most part safe. And because they were standardized and built in a, in a way that they were able to be built with efficiencies, the utilities were guaranteed a revenue stream so they could borrow money cheaply to make these investments in the wires and the substations, which helped hold electric rates down because the cost went down. And so that's kind of a synopsis of, uh, and a long answer to your question about the uh, the regulatory compact that kind of led us to where we are today. Well, the entire regulatory compact by itself is a giant book, oh, yeah. so yeah. simplifying it is really hard. But it sounds like the two key components is both a monopoly for revenue guarantee yes. in exchange for an obligation to serve. Right. And so where a lot of people, I think, focus on is the fact that the utilities are monopolies, that they have a guaranteed revenue, but perhaps they overlook this obligation to serve component right. that these utilities also have. So one of the outcomes of obligation to serve 
from what I understand, is that utilities are not allowed to refuse customers. They're not right. allowed to refuse service, right? That's right? How does that work its way through the way a utility functions? So a customer, small or large, in a less dense area or an urban area, has the right to come up and the utility has to serve it. And it makes an investment oftentimes to extend a line or to add an additional transform and serve it, but that customer comes on at the same rate that all of the existing customers are paid. And so if you have a utility that's adding lots and lots of new customers, like Snohomish was growing rapidly, then what you have to do is look at, am I bringing in enough revenues to be able to borrow money long-term to buy all these expensive wires and transformers to put in? Uh-oh, I need a modest rate increase. And so what happens is customers that have been there a long time, their rates go up in order to make sure the utility has the money to add the right. new customers. So I've been in a situation where the old customers say, well, you should create a separate rate, a rate for old customers and a rate for, and let new customers pay more. But, you know, and I'm used to dealing with these kind of arguments. So the argument I come back with is, well, what business are you in? He says, well, I own a transmission repair shop. I said, well, don't you want more Customers, And so if you put higher electric rates, maybe the person says, well, maybe it's not less expensive to live up in Snohomish. I'm not going to go there. So with all of these sorts of things, utilities balance the given and take. But it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's rough justice, but it's not really granular justice. It's you're kind of taking a meat cleaver and saying, this is what's fair for everybody. And you're slamming it down and saying, that's that. But somebody on either side of that meat cleaver is going to be able to say, but wait a minute, I can show it's not entirely fair to me. And then somebody on the other side is, well, it's not entirely fair to me. And that's one of the battles. And it will actually continue to go on, particularly as we have have and have nots with solar on their roof, people with storage, people without storage, people that participate in demand response, those that don't, those that have smart meters, those that don't, those that have appliances that take signals. I mean, it's going to continue to exacerbate itself in terms of a system. The more we try to make one size fits all, the more it's harder to get everybody to fit into that one size fits all. Yeah, and as you were alluding to, with the proliferation of devices and proliferation of information, people are able to see these small injustices right. within the system. So do you think the problem is going, is smart data, smart meters, IoT, Internet of Things right. data availability going to help or hinder the role of the utility to serve the obligation to serve a community for all? I'm a positive guy and optimistic. <laughs> I think ultimately all of this is good. It's just going to take a lot to get there because the utility will have to transform from a one-way system delivering a commodity. The whole business model changes to a service business where utilities are providing a service because they may have customers that they're not delivering power to, but that customer has a big solar array and they don't need all of the power and they want to enter it into the local market to get a return on that. And so they're going to use the utilities distribution system to get there. And then somebody has to be involved in the transactional aspect of that and the tracking, maybe even the there has to be a tag put on that power to certify that it's green 
in order to make sure that the accounting for everybody quarterly or monthly, who yeah. knows someday. So maybe the utility fits in the best role. It's regulated, it's owned by the community, or it's regulated by the community. So people make sure that that system still remains safe. It remains open access, just like the internet. In this case, it's electrons that are doing work that are moving on the on the power system. All of that kind of thing is, is the role that I see the utility transitioning. So to. do you think there's going to be, a, so the fundamental um, disagreement, right, of this revenue guarantee for obligation to serve, do you think that fundamental relationship is going to have to shift when we start moving to uh, distributed generation of microgrids? Absolutely. I mean, there will be people that don't want to be be served um, uh, by the utility in terms of the commodity, but they may, like I said, all the time or at certain times want the utility to provide some other type of service that's non-commodity related. Now, does the utility have an obligation to move the person's solar electrons on the system across the street and down the neighbor to somebody else? I would think so in the future, yes. If you're going to basically be the highway, in this case, just like the streets, you know, have commerce traveling on it so the donut shop can get its donuts to the Microsoft corporate headquarters or whatever. Um, same sort of thing where the utility, I believe, is going to have to be obligated to serve, but it's a different service, right. not obligated to serve one way. Here's electricity to your house. It's I'm obligated to help you with your energy management Needs. Right. And that implies a different business model Absolutely. than the one that we're currently I, functioning under. Very this much, very much different. Now, the U.S., there's what, 4,000 electric utilities yeah. when you count the large investor owns all the way to yeah. your small co ops. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a, at least hundreds, if not thousands, of regulators that, that are either right. locally elected yes. or statewide to be able to manage these transitions. Have you seen any that are tackling this issue of this shifting of obligation of one way with the revenue generation? Are you seeing any that are making progress in changing that regulatory construct? Yes, there, there's many. Um, I, I, I don't have a specific recent example, but just over time, you know, you find California and a number of the East Coast utilities in terms of very progressive in looking at allowing utilities to change their rate structure so that they sh they're shifting more and more away from the volumetric. In other words, uh, we charge you based on how much you eat, yeah. which has nothing to do whatsoever to do with the waiter, the kitchen, and all the other stuff that took it to get there. And so those those are doing it, but the, but they're having to be very careful with it because at the same time you don't want to throw up any sort of hurdle that stops the transition to solar that that slows I shouldn't say stops but slows down the transition to implementation of demand management and these other kinds of things because right now there are certain things that can take advantage of the volumetric charge. So for example, if I'm a retired guy and I live and I'm in the Puget Sound area, but I live down in Arizona nine months out of the year, I'm not taking any electricity. So basically my bill is next to nothing. 
but the utility has to continue to be ready to serve. If for some reason you got called back or you didn't feel well or you needed to come back, you don't expect to come back and not have power at your house. And so when you're gone all that time, but you're not consuming, if I'm charging you for the distribution system embedded in the volumetric charge, I'm not recovering your share of that system standing ready to serve you. I'm collecting it from everybody else. The same thing happens with solar. If I'm generating, a tr- just like the guy that's gone a lot in Arizona, if I'm using a lot of the solar, I'm not really paying my fair share of the system that helps me to balance between night and day. Yeah. You know, I'm eating it all during the sun, all during the day, but then at night I'm relying on the system, but I'm, I'm consuming substantially less than I used to before. Therefore, I'm paying less for the system. So certain states have begun to say, in order to deal with that more and incentivize both the, the utility and others to continue in the right direction, they're allowing utilities to find ways to charge like standby service for the person that's gone or the person that's not consuming anywhere near what they used to, but still wants to be connected to the grid. So it's interesting you mentioned that, just how local these energy issues are, you know, the difference between Washington and Arizona and whatnot. But yet Washington and Arizona are on the same physical grid, even if the energy resources are different and the regulators are different and even the utility entities are different. Well, what do you think of that interface of... You know, can this one physical infrastructure that covers, what, a dozen or so states on the West Coast have these pockets of regulations that are different and pockets of business models that are different? Well, they can, but it's not a good, it's not a good deal. You and I both know Phil Jones, who was a commissioner here in the state. and He was president of NARUC, which is the National Association for Regulatory entities across the United States, and they work very hard to bring along all bring along all of the state regulatory entities to try to accomplish what you were talking about in terms of not having regulations so different that it impedes that because electricity doesn't see state boundaries. Right. I mean this invisible thing traveling at speed of light on a wire, you know, doesn't stop and go, oh, oh I'm going into another state now. Right. So But I think the bottom line is you're right. The other interesting point I would make in this topic you brought up now is that these large high-voltage transmission lines that connect interstate have been a tremendous asset. For us, particularly in the north and in the west, the transmission line between the northwest and Canada with all this hydro and then California, which originally had a tremendous amount of fossil fuel and nuclear, they were able to back off of the coal. And at times we were so flush with hydro, but we're in the spring and it's not cold weather here. We don't have air conditioning. We don't have heat. We would send all of that power down to California, saved the environment, saved uh, economically uh, substantially. And so those sort of things have historically occurred, even in the time frame that since I've been a general man- manager, with the proliferation of renewables in the Northwest, particularly wind, there are times when we are so surplus and the physics say you can't pump in more than you're taken out at the same time. And so what we do is we make arrangements with utilities in the Southwest 
to back down off a of coal to basically take Washington State wind. And so here's an example again where the system is benefiting us because the wind is going somewhere. It's a value rather than, you know, trying to shut the blades. Yeah, it, it sounds like an interesting yeah. quandary. The larger the system, the more you can balance between these resources, yeah. Yeah. but then yet the local yeah. regulations, local management yeah. Yeah. is a challenge when you have yeah. such a large interstate yeah. system. But, but thanks for bringing me back to that, though, is here's the dilemma. The, the interstate transmission system is still beneficial for the reasons I stated. But as we move to the future that I envision, it's a question as the to degree to which those transmission lines are still of the same value that they are today. Because when I'm growing local and I've got vertical farms growing my produce local, I've got bioenergy that's taking the food waste and producing uh, fertilizer. And I mean, so basically, and I've got solar and I've got all of these different things going on. Do I really need to go outside anywhere other than my own community? Right. In that point, in that environment, the local system is of the utmost import, not only the physical infrastructure locally, but then all the things we talked about, the technologies that will account for all of the millions and billions of transactions that occur every second on right. a system that is that dynamic. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. So, you know, you started off your career in physics and math and computer science. That's a far cry away from working with commissioners, public <laughs> meetings, <laughs> managing large teams. Yeah. Um, how did you decide to get into management? Uh, first of all, how did you, I mean, you got into utilities. How did you decide to get into the management of utilities? Well, I did something that I recommend to everybody, and that is um, do something that you really enjoy doing so that it's not a job, and then take everything out of that that you can. Learn, learn, learn. And that's how I went into electrical engineering, whether it was at Boeing or then when I started in the electric utility industry, I was just intrigued by learning everything I possibly can. And that means you're asking people questions and that people feel good about that because you're asking them about their job. Next thing you know, they ask, how would you like to work on this project I'm working on? Sure, I'd love to do that. You work on that project, then somebody else says, well, I'd like you to work on my team. So basically without a specific plan, I'm gonna move up the corporate ladder I, by the fact that I love to work with people and love to challenge, I kept getting more and more. And what that resulted in, I kept getting promoted. And I got promoted <laughs> at you know very young age. I kept moving up so quickly because my supervisor would say, boy, that guy's great. I'd like him on my team. Well, I'm gonna, I want that guy on my team. And so it all happened that way. So I moved up to management, not because I wanted to tell people what to do. It was because I was a good team player and I like to challenge and I like to accomplish things. Now comes about those are the attributes of a good manager being a coach. You know, you don't you don't necessarily have to lead from the front. You can lead from behind. Yeah. And so then when you joined Snohomish as general manager, you you had to take a an organization that was not in the best of shape and basically turn it into something that I think the state is very proud of today. 
Um, how was that transition of change management and changing corporate culture? Well, and I would say, uh, unfortunately, Snohomish had the issue with Enron during the crisis where they made a commitment and then got into a, a very difficult financial system. And then that created problems politically for them. It created problems for the employees because it was kind of a hunkered down era. So I'm not in a position to say I went into an organization that was a terrible sure, sure. organization with bad people. It just some people had made some bad decisions. They weren't there when I got there. So I didn't have to deal with that. But one of the first things I did, I, I was the head of Tacoma Power prior to going there. And I was happy. I'd been there 28 years. I knew everything about the utility, the history, the service territory, active in the local community. I was kind of envisioning that's probably where my life ends. I grow up in Tacoma. <laughs> I retire in, in Tacoma. But this opportunity comes up at Snohomish, but I didn't need to go there. I wasn't dying to leave. So when I went up to Snohomish and sat down with the three commissioners, knew they had challenges, they knew they had challenges, and I talked to them, we both realized we wanted, we were interested in the same thing. Tacoma had uh, at that time kind of a different, different political, kind of more traditionalist view of the world. Tacoma deals with a lot of, at that point, and maybe still today, a lot of low income issues, drug abuse, that kind of stuff. So a lot of the focus was more for the utility. What are you doing for low income? And also Tacoma is structured differently. It has different services. That's right. right? It's yeah. electricity. It sells also other yeah. services. Yeah. yeah. Well, so does Snohomish, those water. So it does water. And yeah. I think and Tacoma. Belt, Beltline Railroad. And the railroad, and does Tacoma did telecommunications yeah. as well, right? Yeah. So I, I was able to sit with the three commissioners and said, were I to leave this place that I am happy at, it would be for these sorts of reasons. I would like to work for a utility that would be developing an innovation strategy that would be looking at not just where they've been and where they're at, but where they're where they're going and where they need to go, you know. And those, so as we begin to dialogue about that, I'm getting thumbs up for the commission. That's how we feel. We want to be a leader, you know. We want to take those steps to position our utilities so that we're not chasing after this, but we're actually leading the way into that future that, that everybody knows the consumers want. I mean, whether what survey you're looking at, people want more emphasis on renewables and energy efficiency and all these kind of things. So it was kind of a deal made in heaven is, is we, we all have to hit on the same note. So going into it, then I documented all of the things that we agreed that we stood for and represented in terms of the values of the organization, which I cross-checked with the employees, you know, hey, the commissioners and I, we've come up with this. Do you agree? And then they got tweaked a, a little bit because employees want a little more emphasis yeah. on Unemployed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you came up with the agreement with the commissioner and the vision, and there was agreement of what to do, how receptive was the employees to this vision that you had? Varying, varying degrees. You had a lot, and power industry was lots of old school folks. I mean, it's an industry you went in and you worked 30, 40 years and you retired and got your gold watch. Not a lot of turnover. And without a lot of turnover, you don't get a lot of new blood in that often. Most of the time, us utilities in Norwood just traded people. <laughs> you know, we'd offer that guy a little bit more to come work for us. And that was how you got the new blood. You would get somebody in young and new, 
but oftentimes the culture would overwhelm them and turn them in to the culture that existed, which was traditional male-dominated, you know, engineering-focused sort of an industry. And so over my lifetime, and there's particularly the last 10 years or so, that's significantly, significantly changed. So the traditional notion of a utility, and you touched on this a little bit, is that it's old, stodgy, uninnovative. Yes. And some of the reasons for that non-innovative is because of the, the rate structure, yeah. way that it's set up, that it can't take risks. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're not incentivized by the regulatory structure to take chances. It's one size fits all, control costs, make sure the system's safe and reliable, but don't take any chances. So it's easy to see why the commissioner level would be interested in an innovation message, right? Since they're yeah. at the very top. How did that innovation message filter into the organization? Were they receptive to yeah. it? Or Remind me to get back. To, you, you just push a button with me, though. There's a thing called innovation theater. And a lot of policymakers, both on the investor side and the consumer-owned utility side, play the innovation theater. And that's one of the things when I was sitting down with the commissioners and talking about what we agreed in, I had to trust them that we weren't all talking about innovation theater. And I'm assuming that you understand what I mean. Do you want to explain it? Well, innovation theater is where people talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. And I would say in Puget Sound, you see that quite a bit because everybody wants to be green because it... You know, if you're not green, you're not cool. But it's one thing to, to talk it. It's another thing to walk it. And thank goodness I trusted them. They trusted me. And they did want to walk the walk. Now, you were talking about the employees. That, that was much more difficult because there were many that were just satisfied in a utility that had kind of hunkered down and wasn't really doing much. They weren't building out to serve new load. They weren't thinking about that next challenge, that sort of thing. And then you had people that knew that that wasn't the right way and they couldn't wait to jump on on fast enough. So the challenge I had was slowing down the ones that were ready to jump because they were going to trample over everybody else and then try to get the other ones to start walking and, and moving and that sort of thing. And certainly the advantage of retirements also <laughs> I was there nine years. Some of the folks that didn't want to change you know, eventually loud. Yeah. And, and all the same time running the organization and making right. sure status quo was serving right. the clients was yeah. met. Yeah. And yeah, because, you know, you're talking to, to line electricians that go out, uh, leave their home on Thanksgiving night at the middle of the night and are climbing up on a pole in the howling wind and everything like that. Talking to them about block chain and transactions and selling solar, they're going, what kind of a general manager we have here? You know, what really matters is, you know, getting the power safely to the people. So I had to still make sure I don't over become, you know, Mr. Technology Innovation Strategy and not recognize that, you know, utility still, the, where the rubber hits the road is you still have to provide that electricity to, to make the schools and the hospitals and the homes and the businesses go. And a lot of people out there, you know, risk their lives and work extremely hard in order to make that happen. So, you know, talking about innovation and instilling innovation inside of a utility, 
I, I think typically when people talk about innovation, they're thinking of tech innovation, Silicon Valley innovation, biotech innovation, these rapid, rapid changing devices and whatnot, widgets. What does innovation look like inside of a utility? Uh, like, what are some examples of things that worked and things that didn't work? Processes that worked and processes that didn't work? Well, let, let me give you an example. So initially in time, as computer technology came into utilities, rather than sending someone out to see if an area had had a catastrophic equipment failure, you would be able to put transducers and these sort of thing to get electronic signal back to the control center that said the feeder at substation X tripped off. You know, it's off. When I first came in the industry, we didn't know what was going on until the customers called to tell us that. And people just didn't, they thought they thought the utility knew what went on right at their, their house. And so technology began to evolve to where, and they're called SCADA systems, supervisory control and data acquisition. Nowadays, people more refer to integration with energy, distribution energy management systems and so on and so forth. But more and more uh, sophistication, automation. But those computer systems were not connected to the internet. They were closed systems that just provided information to the person flying the electric plane, kind of like in the air traffic control office. Mm -hmm. Well, along comes all of this innovation concept that we need to have all this information at the fingertips of everybody. Consumers need to know the status of the power at their home and their system. We need to put smart meters on the side of people's houses in order to be able to track their consumption. But they need to also be able to... So all of a sudden you have the... OT, the operating technology system, and the IT, the information technology system that's connected to the internet, all of a sudden they start to say, we need to have an interface between these two. Society's pushing it, technology's pushing it, and regulatory activities and legislative are pushing it. So utilities begin to connect the two systems together. Can you imagine what happens? Somebody in some country somewhere now cannot just go into the utility and look at their personnel records. Now, all of a sudden, they can go into an operating system that opens and closes gates at the dam, that turns off and on power to an Air Force base or a Boeing field or something like that. And so there's an example where people didn't really sit down and strategize. and It all kind of happened over time, kind of piecemeal. And the, the idea that all of a sudden we got to a point, and you've just seen it in the last couple of years, there have been hearings in Congress, and there have been people make big pronouncements. You know, the electric system is endangered. It could be hacked. And all of a sudden, you know, all the power in the West Coast could be shut off instant, instantaneously. Yeah, and that's been a risk that's been newly introduced from the IT side, the information yeah, by, technology side. By connecting side. it to, to a system that, that some, if somebody had wanted to hack originally into the the operating system, they would have had to come into this to the community, to climb a pole, cut into the fiber network, and get the right fiber that went to whatever it was, which is a near impossibility. Right. Now, now all they need is just some good computer hacking skills. Although I, I don't want to make it sound that easy. I mean, there's been a lot that's been 
done in terms of beefing up the security so that people can't do that. Right, absolutely. That's been on people's minds for about a decade or so, I think. So I think that answered your question about how unanticipated things and how innovation sometimes creates negative problems you hadn't maybe anticipated that degree, and then you have to deal with that. And some of this can't always be anticipated. Some of it doesn't really come to realization until you actually begin to... Two-part question. As general manager, and then also as part of Snohomish PUD as part of a utility, where did you see you having the most flexibility for decisions and just saying, hey, we need to go do this because that's good? And where were the constraints set in or the the systematic constraints set in to say, well, we got to slow down and we have to uh, consider this for a lot longer? You know, what could you do fast? What could you do slow? I, I could definitely operate within the bounds of the budget and the strategic plan. And as I said earlier, I believed and followed through on it very strongly to be on the same page with the board. So therefore, I put together a strategic plan that wasn't just grand platitudes. It actually had specific targets and statements of position on things so that I would have the flexibility. And then when we set the budget up, I would go to the board and explain how this budget I presented to them carries out this strategy. And so, for example, my board said we want to be a leader in the research and development of renewables and to the extent possible in our own backyard. They were thinking ahead in terms of this grow local, do it local. You know, yeah, you could build a wind farm in North Dakota, but you've got to go over into North Dakota and all that sort of thing. You know, is it possible that there's wind uh, in Snohomish County that we could capture? And, And then it's local, provide jobs, have an asset invested in our community. So part of that, you may recall, was our exploration of title in the area. So there's an example where if I had just said, geez, I'm the general manager, I think I'm going to go invest, have some staff focus their in their time on the research and development of title, that would have been difficult to do. But the fact I laid the groundwork with the board, make sure they were on board, then I was able to do it. But it's the kind of thing, there was no roadmap to follow. Nobody had ever done title in, Snohom- in, in the Puget Sound before. Um, The technology was all over the map. The regulatory picture was who is it that would regulate that? You know, not sure. And so it it was kind of a path that you had to kind of find your way along. Someone had to do it first. Yeah. And once it's done first, it's hopefully easier the second, the third time. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So again, if, if it was the kind of thing well, it might, it might be the case of an equipment, a significant, because utilities, multi-million dollar, a significant equipment purchase that, you know, I could authorize that, yeah. you know, they didn't have to approve it because, you know, there was already part of the plan to build a new substation in the east part of the service territory. And those are the types of decisions that, that's been made for 30 years. Yeah. So everyone knows exactly yeah. what it's like, yeah. but something like purchasing a new solar or a solar farm, if it's the first time a utility had ever purchased that solar farm, that might take a a lot longer to execute. I think a key to any CEO is you never want to surprise your board. (laughs) 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 You always want to to bring bring the board 
along. And that's and I follow that same theory even in terms of when problems arose. And some people thought I was foolish or silly to do this, but I even did it when I was a, an early supervisor and manager before I was the CEO. But when a significant problem would come up, I would go to my boss and I would say, I've just become informed of this significant problem. And I knew what the first thing, even before they could get out of my mouth, I'd say, here is the plan I intend to implement to address this. And I will keep you appraised if these milestones aren't met. But surely I will, you know, come back, you know, in a time. And that way, what I got out of that is they don't find out about it from somebody else. They know I'm on top of it already and dealing with. So if their boss comes to them and says, hey, I've heard you got this problem. Oh, don't worry about it. You know, we're taking care of it. So it's. It's my yeah. suggestion, you know, even if you're the CEO, don't feel so big. Keep your board informed. Keep the same thing. It, it sounds like pairing problems with solutions, something yes. that I think is a very good just habit to form. Oh, yeah. And even if the solution isn't quite right, at least just knowing that there's one there yeah. gives confidence that you can now search for the other possible yeah. solutions that, are, yeah. that might yeah. address the problem. And I'm also a big believer in defining the problem. Mm. If you don't define the problem, some bunch of your boss, so a bunch of people come out, so I really, oh, really, oh, whoever yelled the loudest, maybe you think, well, that must be the, the problem. So you're off and I'm telling them I'm solving that problem. You find out, no, the majority of them, that was just one loud guy. <laughs> it's a, the real problem is this problem. So you want to always make sure you define the problem and make sure the people that are going to help you solve it. Or on the same page. They agree with you. That's the problem. And then, like you said, then you can also strategize about the solutions. Sometimes it's more than one potential one. You maybe say, well, we want to do this, but then have this as a backup and have them occurring concurrently. But again, always make sure you define the problem. Make sure everybody is on the same page in terms of what the real problem. You'd be surprised. All people that are listening to this think about if they've been in these situations where you got to some point, you've been spinning the wheel and spinning the wheel, and you finally everybody realized they all saw the problem differently. And yeah. so that's why people were doing things that seemed to contradict what the other folks were doing because they weren't seeing the problem the same way. What sort of advice would you give people who are thinking of entering the utility sector or looking at serving the utility sector? How What's the best entry point and way in? Well, I think... Uh, it, it comes from many different perspectives. One of the challenges that we have and basically all of industry has is the technicians. We put so much emphasis today on college and getting advanced degrees. And then here we are dying to find line electricians and meter technicians, all these people that, you know, with overtime make $120,000 a year and we can't find people to fill those jobs. So certainly it's a it's a very fulfilling those are fulfilling career and based on today it's not swinging a hammer. I mean, it's it's, you know, some physical work, but it's still a lot of mental work because everybody carries a laptop with them nowadays and all these systems are complex. So even if you're tweaking it with a screwdriver, you've got to understand the technology. So it's Mentally and physically challenging. In my mind, you can't get a better job than, than that, yeah. working the mind and, and the body. And particularly, uh, I would emphasize for 
all genders and races too, because historically it's just seemed like all linemen are big Caucasian guys and start to look more closer. You know, there's more and more people of, of color and women and, and, and other things like that, that, you know, make sure to put that on your potential list, even though you maybe don't see enough role models enter that. Then in terms you go beyond that, utilities get involved in absolutely everything. They have accountants, they have uh, biologists, particularly in the Northwest where with hydro projects, we're managing fish protection, all these kinds of things like that. In terms of the electrical energy side of it, there's many different areas. When I was in college, you're going to work for a utility, you specialized in power engineering. And now there's many different areas uh, to look at. Lots of the different sky, ways skies The sky is the limit. The sky is the limit. Yeah. And in fact, one of my friends is a technician on wind farms. Yeah. And he says, you know, his favorite experience is just being a couple hundred feet up yeah. in the air by himself, looking at the horizon, just swapping out electrical yeah. components and parts or something like that. So he just absolutely loves his job yeah. Uh, yeah. doing that type of work. If, if I could put in a plug, I, I was, this issue uh, did come up in, in my career in terms of we started to need more and more people with dealing with developing demand response programs. That means incentivizing customers to back off on their use at certain times of the day or month. And then how you would incentivize for that. What kind of a structure would you create in terms of compensate the people for that? And where would you look for opportunities where you could purchase power less or if you had a certain block of this? So you, you know, as the CEO going, yeah, this is really a cutting edge thing. We need to do it. And so we said, so who do we have internally work on that? Okay. Well, we got accountants. Yeah, but they know how to add columns up and, you know, report that, okay, what do we have over here? Well, we have, you know, energy efficiency guys, but they're used to measuring attic insulation and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so we started scratching it. And so same thing with the looking at tidal energy. Who is it internally we should have a look at that? Well, is it really, you know, designing substations? It's got, you got regulatory, where do we start regulatorily? It's got, you know, political, it's got economic, it's got finance, all these sorts of things. So just so happened Western Washington University was looking at creating an energy institute. And so I got involved early on with a number of other folks. It wasn't just just me and them, but in terms of creating kind of more holistic kind of an individual that would get an education in the regulatory construct. So they understood the regulatory aspect of energy get trained in the economics of it, being able to do the financial economic analyses of whatever business proposal that, that you would make. And then the technology, maybe not so much technology where you know you would know the inside of a transformer, but you would know how an electric grid operated, the basics of Ohm's law and those kind of things. And then you get the kind of person that you could turn loose 
to do these kinds of things that utilities would have to kind of self-manufacture. So I should have mentioned that when you asked that question is you do have the opportunity, and I think it's very exciting. It's probably the field I would have went, I would went into if it was available in my day and I would look at today is getting kind of that thing because then you get to do it all. You get to do a little bit of everything, and that's kind of where we're going today where these different types of programs, as utilities become more service-oriented, they're going to have many different opportunities to create different businesses within that business model. And this is the kind of person that could do it, that understands how do I set that up regulatorily, the economics for it, the business case, and then being able to bring the technical people together to accomplish. Yeah, so a lot of change, a lot of disruption, and also a lot of opportunity yeah. to come and make a difference. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us sure, today. Sure, it was this my pleasure. absolutely a, a lot of fun. So. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change.